Good morning, friends. My name is Thomas. If we've never met, I'm on staff here at the church, and it's my joy to be able to continue to open up the scriptures as we go through the story of Revelation. And as I was thinking about you this week, I I just wanted to know how many people in the room have ever played a sport? Nice. Continue to raise your hands if you played an endurance sport. Less. All right, because there's a difference between sports and endurance sports. Although categorically, they have a lot of similarities. Like if you think of running, there is the sport of running. And then there's an endurance sport of running. And so you might run the 100-yard race or the 100 meters, but you also might run the Leadville 100, a 100-mile race at altitude, 10,000 feet. And so, yes, they sound very similar. I'm a runner. But there's a difference between a runner and an endurance runner. The word endurance for sports is defined this way. It is extreme stress on the body for a prolonged period of time. And so yes, all athletes go through some level of stress on their body, but what makes endurance sports so unique is that that stress on the body is prolonged for a period of time that normally you wouldn't participate in. You're not just going to go for a 100-mile run. And so there's a difference between a swimmer and the swimmer that does the Ironman, a cyclist, and you couple that with a marathon. Those are endurance sports. And so you might be asked this question, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Are you a Christian? And you might raise your hand and say, yes! And the follow-up question would be, do you have enduring faith? Are you an enduring Christian? Are you the kind of person, the kind of woman, the kind of man that knows that Jesus has called us not to a sprint, but to a marathon? That when Jesus talks to his disciples in preparation for his ascension and this period of time before he returns again, he talks about it as an endurance activity. He says it's like a bridal party waiting for the groom to return, and many in the bridal party get worn out waiting so that when he returns, they aren't ready. So we're in this book of Revelation, and Revelation 13 is this unique chapter that I think offers us this. It's a call to endurance and wisdom. I think this is the main point of the text today, is that those who have wisdom and endurance will not be deceived or defeated. It's a call in our faith to endurance, to experience hardships and stress in our life over a prolonged period of time. That's what we're called to. And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 13, which has some unique characters arise. And so if you're new this morning, Revelation is a unique kind of genre in the Bible. It's not necessarily historical writing. It's not poetic or musical It's apocalyptic, and apocalyptic literature is its unique genre that has vivid images, symbols, and signs that are to point to a reality behind them. It's not fantasy. It's not fiction. It's to help us understand the reality of things that were, the reality of things as they are, and the reality of things that as they will be one day. So it's similar to this sign that I saw last night. Here's a sign that I saw last night. The heavens were ablaze 
with fire, and the sun disappeared, and darkness came over the land. And there was a beast from the coast, like a beaver, that came and waged war on this beast like a buffalo in the mountains. And he was given authority to conquer the buffalo. Now, what am I talking about? The CU Buff game last night. Ugh, buffs, come on. Tear my heart out. But it's just vivid pictures, imagery, signs and symbols, not that are fiction, to help describe reality, what's really going on. And so in Revelation 13, again, we see some interesting characters. And the reason that many people in the room, if not most, were able to understand my sign of the sunset, the sun disappearing at night, this game between Oregon State and Colorado, is because your life contains the verbiage of college football. And the reason that Revelation seems so foreign is because your life does not contain the verbiage of the Old Testament as well. And so I have to study really hard for these things because I'm going to admit, oftentimes I'm lacking to understand some of this verbiage. It doesn't come readily to mind. And so here's what I have today in Revelation 13 to help us understand what God has given us. Chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Already we just feel lost, right? Remember, this comes on the heel of chapter 12, where we looked at this dragon, this imagery of the person of Satan, God's adversary, who wants to devour the people of God. And at the end of 12, we see this dragon is cast out of heaven. He's defeated because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he can no longer present himself and accuse the brothers, the sisters of faith before God, for he's been thrown down. And so he stands on the coastline to wage war to oppress, to pursue the people who follow Jesus Christ. And here in 13, it picks it up, is how does this dragon, how does God's adversary pursue the people of God? What does he animate in order to bother, persecute those who follow Jesus Christ? And it's this picture of a beast coming out of the sea. Now, the sea in Old Testament language is always description of chaos, of disorder, of evil. And so he's calling a beast out of chaos, evil, and disorder. Now, this beast has a unique image to it of lion, leopard, and bear. And if, if you knew your Old Testament really, really well, immediately your mind would hyperlink to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is, is, in, is in captivity in Babylon. He's feeling oppressed. He's experiencing oppression of a state in which hates the things of God. And there he sees kind of this revelation, a vision of beasts. This is Daniel chapter 7. It says, And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard. 
After this, I saw a night's vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And Daniel goes on to give this interpretation that all of those beasts are kings and kingdoms that are going to come that will prepare the way for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And their descriptions of the Babylonian empire that he was in, then the Assyrian, the Persian empire, and then you have the Greek and Roman empire, and then Christ. And so he saw this 500 years before these empires came, and then historically, they come in just like Daniel saw. And now here in Revelation 13, we're, we're taken back to that, to these kingdoms that have already existed, and talking about this fourth beast, this terrifying beast at the end of the age. And our minds are immediately to think of kings and kingdoms, governments and systems. And there's, is there a better way to describe governments and systems, politics, than as a beast? A beast that devours its people, that robs people, that assigns people to military positions, that try to go devour other people of other nations. It's a war of nations, of tribes and tongues. And so what you have here is the dragon, that's Satan, God's adversary, animating kingdoms, governments, politics, systems that oppose and pursue to persecute the people of God. And it's, so it's two things. One, it's a summation of all the kingdoms that have done this in the past. So if you're the first century readers of Revelation 13, it's Rome. It's Emperor Nero that lit Christians on fire to illuminate Rome of the day. It's Rome as they persecuted the believers the followers of Jesus Christ. And it's every kingdom since. So it's both the summation and it's also the culmination, meaning it's going to culminate at some point to an antithesis in which God will defeat. And so two things are true at once. It's the summation of all these kingdoms leading to the culmination of this final beast. Verse three. Let's just read the rest of the chapter and then we'll see if we can put the whole thing together because the story gets even better. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints, those who follow Christ, and to conquer them. And authority was given it over the tribe of every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Now, in Revelation, when it talks about those who dwell on earth or earth dwellers, it's always talking about unbelievers. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. And here it is. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here's a call to prolonged hardship through time. Verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two 
horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. You ever heard the phrase, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing? Like this is the story of, of uh, Red Riding Hood, that the wolf dresses itself in its grandmother's clothing, waiting to devour her. This is a dragon in lamb's clothing. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Later on, this second beast is going to be called the prophet of the beast. It's a religious leader whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name this calls for wisdom. There's another call for endurance and wisdom. Turn your brain on. Think about these things. Be a critical thinker of truth. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. This is the iconic text where that dreaded number 666 shows up. Chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion, that's a description of Jerusalem, at Mount Zion stood the Lamb, not a Lamb, but the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. This is a hyperlink back to Revelation 7, where he already said, I've already sealed those who follow Jesus Christ, those who belong to me. They have already have my name written on them. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like a sound of the loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song. And here's the worship service that's happening to the Lamb. So this whole chapter kind of puts two people in opposition. On one side right here, we have the Lamb and the Father and those who follow Jesus Christ, who've been marked by Jesus Christ, who are being persecuted because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And on the other side over here, what you have is this dragon, this beast, and another beast, maybe a prophet, in which rise up and they have a counterfeit to God and his people. Everything that God has done, this dragon, this beast, has a false representation of. Now, in the book of Revelation, the word antichrist is never used. Did you know that? Never in the book of Revelation is the word antichrist used. But this is a description of antichrist. Antichrist can mean one of two things, if not both. Antichrist means in opposition to Christ, like opposes Christ, or in place of, or instead of Christ. Either will fit. The goal is so that people won't go to Christ. So either you oppose Christ or you stand in place of Christ and you can say, you don't need Jesus. Forget Jesus. You don't need to follow Jesus. 
follow me. Or you can say, hey, I am Jesus. I am your savior. Or you're your savior. And so anti either means opposed to or in place of pseudo Christ. And here's what John has said in another letter. So you're wondering where that title comes from. It comes from another letter that John has written. That's the author of Revelation. You go to 1 John, not the gospel, but 1 John. These are letters that he's writing to believers after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, writing to the church, he says, Children, it is the last hour, meaning like the final epoch of human history. The last hour is from Christ's ascension to his return. This is the last hour. And you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. One of the key marks of being in this final epoch of time is the rise of those who oppose Christ or are pseudo in place of Christ, trying to gather the attention away from Jesus to themselves. Chapter 4, verse 2 in 1 John. By this you know the Spirit of God. Like, what is the Spirit of God? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Those who believe in the historical Jesus Christ, in his works, death, and resurrection, that's from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And so it's not just something to look at in the future and say, in the future, Antichrist will come. No, John is saying, he's already here. The activity of opposing and standing in place of Christ already exists. Now, this isn't to make you afraid, because you know how the story ends. You win. Team God wins, okay? It says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's good to remind yourself that. Another letter, last one from John. This is 2 John, starting in verse 7. He says, for many deceivers, dragons in sheep's clothing. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And so here in Revelation, antichrist is described as beast, the one that devours those who stand with Christ. So they're in opposition to Christ or in place of Christ, setting up a counterfeit Christ a counterfeit religion, a counterfeit way of life. And we'll see in Revelation that this work is actually very, very demonic. It actually comes from the pit of hell itself. This is from the work that is the adversary to God. Later on in, in Revelation chapter 16, John notes this weird, weird part of this vision. 16, 13, he says, I saw coming out of the mouth of this dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits, right? It's a spiritual thing. Our war is not against people, against flesh and blood. Remember, our war is against what? The powers, principalities of this present darkness. For they are demonic spirits. That's what they are. They're animating life to oppose the things of Christ. 
But it's from the pit of hell itself. This is the work of a dragon in sheep's clothing. Now, it's important to know this about the devil. Is The devil is a counterfeiter. That's what he is. God, God is called creator. God creates things out of nothing. He brings creation. He brings humanity. He brings life. He brings beauty. He brings order. He brings joy. He brings industry. That's God. The devil can't create anything. He's not equal with God. This is not a dualistic view of, of religions. No, the devil is a created being, and the, at his best, he's a counterfeiter. He takes what God has created, and he bends, twists, warps, perverts it, and then sells it to you as the thing you really, really want. And here in chapter 13, we see all sorts of his ways to be a counterfeiter. The first thing he counterfeits is the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. Over here, you have this triunity. Here in Revelation 13, you have the dragon, his beast, and the beast's prophet, or the second beast. He's trying to counterfeit the very things of God in his system of power and authority. The next thing he counterfeits is, is thrones and authorities. That God has his throne, he has his authority. We know that God is sovereign over all things, but yet this dragon, beast, and prophet are trying to present themselves as royal dignitaries. That's what diadems were on their, on their heads, their crowns. And it says they have authority from their throne. They've set their throne up to try to impress you, to try to have you listen to them. And so there's a counterfeit of thrones and authorities. And not only do they have a false counterfeit of their unity, their throne, but they have a, they have a false counterfeit resurrection. This beast who had a mortal wound and yet was healed. Did you see that in the text? He sets himself up as one who has been wounded, perhaps even looking dead. Like this, this government, this system has died and yet has a resurrection to it. And people are so impressed with it that they follow him. That's in juxtaposition to what? The slain lamb. We've seen the picture again and again of Jesus Christ as the lamb of God who was truly slain, historically, put to death on the cross, buried three days later, historically, with the 500 eyewitnesses at one time even, seen to be risen from the dead. And yet there's a counterfeit going on over here to try to deceive the world that they had a wound that looked fatal and yet returned. And so the world worships it. So there's a counterfeit resurrection. And then there's a, a counterfeit of signs and wonders. Somehow this, this beastly prophet is able to bring fire down from heaven or be able to do things that only we saw Moses and Elijah do. There are many churches or religious groups that try to present themselves as genuine, authentic because of their signs and wonders. Like, look at our signs and wonders. Surely God lives here. Maybe, maybe not. Don't let the signs and wonders fool you from their proper orthodoxy, their teaching of God's word. And so there's a counterfeit of God's activity in people's life that can lead people astray. This calls for wisdom. Turn your brain on. Think about these things. Know that God has told you about these sorts of activities. And not only do they have a counterfeit of signs and wonders, there's a counterfeit mark that followers of the beast get. 
See, those who belong to the Lamb, who follow Jesus Christ, says they have the name of their Father and Jesus Christ written on their foreheads. We've already seen this several times in which God has marked out his people. They already have a mark on their body. And yet this, this dragon, beast, and prophet have a false countermark called the mark of the beast. Its number being 666. And I love how the text says this calls for wisdom. Because man, in this conversation of what the mark of the beast is, it sure lacks wisdom, doesn't it? Think about all the things that the world has thought of. Oh man, that's the mark of the beast. It's, it's, it's barcodes. Look at the mark of the beast, it's your social security number. Look at the mark of the beast, it's your visa card. Look at the mark of your beast, it's, it's a vaccine. It's gonna be an implant of a chip. Maybe. But of all that fear of not knowing what this mark is, you can receive the mark that you already know what it is. And if you're marked by the blood of the lamb, the work of Jesus Christ in your life, there's no fear of what the mark of the beast is. You've already been marked out, do you get it? So why would you have any fear of what the mark of the beast could be? Just take the mark of the lamb. Take the mark of the lamb on your life, receive Jesus Christ, and there's nothing the beast can do for you are secure in Christ. Now, what of this 666? It's the number of a man or of man. Well, the number 666 in which people have tried to use to identify specific individuals as the beast has been happening since the very beginning. So those who take Revelation, this is a fancy word, preterist, a historical view that's already happened in the past, say, okay, that the mark of the beast was Nero. Nero's name, numerically, is 666. That is a practice of dermatria. Now, if you've never heard this, it's really simple. It's not like this crazy sci-fi thing you have to do. It's simply ordering the alphabet with numbers. So like A would be one, B would be two, C would be three, therefore, you know, so forth and so on. And then you would add up the numbers of their name and be able to come up with what the numerical value of their name was. Now, this is something that actually was practiced in the very first century. We have, a, we have an inscription in Pompeii, which is in Italy, just outside of Naples, that reads this. I love her whose number is 545. Like, it's like water tower, like, I love Gina. You know, it's like, that's beautiful. But I love the woman whose name is 545. And, and people would know, if you take that number and you knew who the name was, you would know who that inscription is attributed to. And so with a certain form of spelling, with a unique title, not often used of Nero, and you kind of add up those numbers in Greek, after you've transliterated it to Hebrew, you get 66 for Nero. Impressive. But you can do that with a lot of names. And it's been tried many times. So like, for example, during the Reformation, many Protestants figured out how we can get a name of a pope. And based on this spelling, maybe in Latin, adding up the numbers is 666, the pope. It's been used against Hitler. Unique spellings of Hitler transliterated into this language or that 666. It's been used against Ronald Reagan and other presidents. It's like whoever you don't like, you just figure out which spelling of their name you have to use to get to 666. I bet you could do it for me. <laughs> now, could it mean that? Maybe. I don't lean that direction. I believe it's the mark of a man, of humanity. Because remember how Revelation has been using numbers. It's been using to identify people. 
And so if 777, right, remember God created the earth in seven days, seven is perfection, seven is completion. And so three times seven, like three sevens is perfect completion is fullness for God as described in Revelation. And so what is 666 is, well, that's short of perfection. It's, it's short of perfection once, short of perfection twice, short of perfection three times. It's incomplete once, it's incomplete twice, it's incomplete three times. It's completely incomplete. It always falls short. It's completely a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. And it's a deception. And it's a deception in which our systems and powers and authorities in this present world to either be opposed to Christ or be in place of Christ to get your attention, and really what we'll see is your worship. For you worship the one whose mark you bear. That's what Revelation's telling you. You worship the one whose mark you bear. Now, we've talked about worship before many times, and worship is worship. Everybody's a worshiper. Worship is not a religious activity. It is a human activity. Every single human being is a worshiper. They find something that's worthy right? Great value, attention. And then we direct our resources to it. We direct our time to it. We'll, like, we'll calendar around it. We'll schedule time to meet with it. We'll, we'll give our attention to it. That's worship. And every human being does it. And so this counterfeit God is interested in getting your worship, is what you direct your life towards. And so this whole thing is a conversation on who do you pledge allegiance to? Who do you give your allegiance to? Is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit marked out by the name of Father, Son, and Spirit? Or the beast? And he's not just looking so demonic and awful and disgusting so that no one would go to him. Look, he looks beautiful. He's a dragon in sheep's clothing. He's impressive. He's successful. He's accomplished. He has real power in this world. And you say, well, who doesn't want to follow that? Is that not the culmination of the American dream? Or are you the slain lamb over here? So he's interested in your worship. Look, look here, back here in, in Revelation. Starting in verse 4, they worship the dragon. They worship the beast. Verse 8, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Verse 12, the earth and its inhabitants were made to worship the first beast. That's in juxtaposition to verse 15. It might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Remember Joshua before they came into the land? He said, we're coming into a land that God has promised for us. In this land, there are many gods. God has called us not to have any gods before him. No idols, no worship of other gods, no, no giving our lives and allegiance to other gods. And he asked him, you have to choose today. You have to choose. Whom you will serve. And he told the people of Israel, as for me and my house, like my family, we have chosen to serve the Lord. We've chosen to serve the Lord. And so Revelation 13 is a call for wisdom 
and endurance, for those who have wisdom to know what's going on in reality and to have endurance to go through hardship for a prolonged period of time. For those with wisdom and endurance will not be deceived or defeated. For there are two that are offered for your allegiance. There is the slain lamb, and there is one that looks like a lamb, but it's really a dragon ready to devour and consume you. I love that Guthrie just points this out in one of her commentaries. She says, whenever a pulpit is used to point to the state as our hope and salvation rather than Christ alone as our hope and salvation, we're hearing the voice of this beast. Is anytime someone's trying to direct you to your ultimate hope, security, protection, either in opposition or in place of Jesus Christ, you're hearing the voice of the beast. Instead of the voice of the Father and the Son, the voice of the Father and the Son in their kindness is to call you to them. For God so loved the world that he gave up his only Son so that whoever, whosoever in this room or anyone you know, whoever, no matter what they've done, whosoever would believe in him, he would save. He would save. And so we're going to move to the communion table. If you're helping with communion, would you come forward at this point? Communion is a time in which we remember the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that you and I don't deserve forgiveness, that we don't deserve life, that we don't deserve eternity, but God so loved us that he came to die for us. And so we remember what Jesus has done as we look forward to what Jesus one day will do in destroying evil and righting the world to wipe every tear, to mend every wound, to right every wrong. One note that I need to tell you today about communion, normally at the very end we collect the cups. Um, I've been instructed to let you know, just take that cup and there's a little circle in the chair in front of you, down there on the base, if you just set it in there. If you can't find that or don't see it, just go ahead and set it on the, the chair leg in front of you and we'll pick it up after the service. But as we step into communion, it's for the believers in the room. If you have yet to entrust Christ, then I ask for you just to let the cup and the bread pass by. Or, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and the work of the cross for you, that you would be a son or daughter in Jesus and then join the family meal. But let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks that you are the initiator, the creator of grace. That you drew near, that you didn't remain far and aloof, but that you entered the mess of our lives and that you took our sin and nailed it to the cross so that we would be forgiven forever. We thank you for the love of Jesus Christ, Father. He is our savior. And Lord, we long for you to return. It's in his name we pray, amen.